my weekly's magical flying bookshop your feel-good fiction podcast sponsored by pavers pop on your favorite pair of slippers curl up in the comfiest chair and listen to your favorite authors chat away in my weekly's magical flying bookshop landing wherever you are so come on in and join me claire gill our bookshop host as we hear from one of my weekly's favorite authors like any good story there are three parts to our podcast in the first chapter we kick off with a short story or an extract from our guest's latest book the middle chatty chapter is quiz the author where the author answers all your questions followed by book post our final cozy chapter with a roundup of the hotly tipped book of the week this week we are joined by the talented sophie kinsella Sophie Kinsella has sold over 45 million copies of her books in more than 60 countries and she's been translated into over 40 languages. International best-selling writer of many number one books including the hugely popular Shopaholic series back in September 2000 which propelled Sophie to the UK best-selling list with her first novel in the Shopaholic series The Secret Dream World of a Shopaholic. This book's heroine is, of course, the unforgettable Becky Bloomwood. Sophie, however, first started writing under the name Madeleine Wickman, publishing seven novels after a career as a financial journalist. Since her success under pseudonym Sophie Kinsella, she has written the hugely successful children's book series The Mummy Fairy and Me and has dipped her toe into the world of young adults with Finding Audrey, a personal favourite of mine. The titles and topics may change, but Sophie Kinsella's voice doesn't. Wit and humour are her USPs, emotional comedy, laughter out of desperate times. Welcome to the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. Do come in. It's lovely to have you here, Sophie. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you so much. This is such a, a lovely place to be. Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and cuppa as Sophie reads you an extract from her latest book, The Party Crasher. My Weekly prides itself on its fabulous fiction. Take it away, Sophie. I've had an out-of-body experience precisely three times in my life. The first was when my parents told us they were divorcing. Boom, out of the blue, for no good reason as far as I can make out. The second was when Dad announced he had a new girlfriend called Krista, who was an exercise wear sales executive he'd met in a bar. The third is happening right now. Did you hear me? Bean's anxious voice is in my ear. Effie? They've sold Green Oaks. Yes, I say, my voice weirdly croaky. I heard you. I feel as though I'm floating high up, looking down on myself. There I am, leaning against the front wall of four great Grosvenor Place Mayfair in my waitress uniform, my head twisted away from the bright sunlight, my eyes closed. Sold. Sold. Green Oaks. Gone to strangers. It's been on the market for a year. I'd almost come to believe it would always be on the market. Safely tucked away on right move. Not gone. Effie? Effolent, are you okay? 
Bean's voice penetrates my thoughts and I snap back to reality. I'm in my own body again, standing on the pavement where I really shouldn't be. Salsa Verde Catering does not encourage the waiting staff to take phone breaks, or loo breaks, or any kind of breaks. Yes, of course, of course I'm okay. I straighten my back and breathe out sharply. I mean, God, it's a house. It's no big deal. Well, it kind of is. We grew up there. It would be understandable to feel upset. Upset? Who said I'm upset? Bean, I don't have time for this, I say briskly. I'm on a job. The house is sold. Whatever. They can do what they like. I'm sure Krista's already picked out her luxury villa in Portugal. I expect it's got a built-in jewellery cabinet for all her bracelet charms. Sorry, what does she call them again? Her Twinkies. I can feel Bean's wince through the ether. She and I have different views on many topics, from balconet bras to custard, but most of all on the topic of Krista. The thing with Bean is she's so nice. She should have been a diplomat. She looks for the good in Krista, whereas I just look at Krista. My mind automatically conjures up a vision of Dad's girlfriend. Blonde hair, white teeth, fake tan, annoying dachshund. The first time I met her, I was astounded. She was so young, so different. I was already gobsmacked that Dad had a girlfriend in the first place. And then we met her. I tried to like her, or at least to be polite. I really, really did. But it's impossible. So I kind of went the other way. Did you see them on Instagram today? I can't help twisting the knife and Bean sighs. I've told you before, I don't look. Oh, you should, I say. It's a really fab photo of Dad and Krista in a bubble bath together holding champagne glasses. Hashtag sex in your 60s. Isn't that nice? Because I was wondering if Dad was having sex, obviously, and now I know. So that's good to have that confirmed. Although, isn't Krista in her 40s? Shouldn't she be represented? Oh, and he's definitely been at the fake tan again. I don't look, Bean repeats in her quiet, resolute way. But I have spoken to Krista. Apparently, there's going to be a party. A party? A house cooling. A chance to say goodbye, I guess. It's going to be a big deal. Black tie, caterers, all that. Black tie, I echo in disbelief. Whose idea was that? Krista's? I thought she was spending all the cash on a villa, not some pretentious party. When is it, anyway? Well, that's the thing, says Bean. Apparently, it's been under offer for a while. Only Dad didn't tell anyone in case it fell through. So they're really far along. They're completing a week on Wednesday and the party's on Saturday. A week on Wednesday? I feel suddenly hollow. But that's... that's... Soon. Too soon. I close my eyes again, letting the news ricochet through me in bounces and jabs of pain. My mind can't help hurtling back yet again to that day our world changed forever. Sitting in the kitchen, drinking mulled wine, feeling all happy and warm, with no idea of the bombshell about to hit us. Of course, in hindsight, I can see there were signs. Mimi's tense hands, Dad's damp eyes. 
those wary looks they kept shooting each other. Even the downsized Christmas tree feels significant now. But you don't see a small Christmas tree and automatically think, wait a minute, small tree? I bet my parents are divorcing. I had no idea. People say all the time, you must have had some idea. But I truly didn't. Even now, I sometimes wake up and have a few blank, blissful moments before suddenly, woof, I remember it all. Mimi and Dad are divorced. Dad's dating Krista. Mimi lives in a flat in Hammersmith. Life as we knew it is over. Then, of course, all the other catastrophic elements of my life pile into my head. Not only have my parents broken up, our whole family has pretty much broken up. I'm engaged in an ongoing feud with Krista. I never speak to Dad. I was made redundant four months ago. I'm just not on top of my life anymore. It's like I'm in a fog. Sometimes I almost feel like someone died, only we didn't get any flowers. And I haven't had a proper boyfriend since Dominic, who turned out to be totally two-faced. In fact, if we're counting a face, for each girl he was secretly shagging, he was five-faced. And I can't believe I wrote out all his Christmas cards for him because he said my writing was nice. I'm a gullible sap. I know it's all happening really fast, Bean is saying apologetically, as though this is her fault. I don't know what's happening about the furniture. I guess it'll go into storage till they find a place. I'm claiming my stuff anyway. Dad and Krista are going to rent somewhere meanwhile. Anyway, Krista says she's emailing invitations out later today, so I wanted to warn you. Everything's been happening so fast, I think, my chest tight. Divorce, girlfriend, sell the house. And now, throw a party. I mean, a party. I try to imagine going to a party at Greenoaks that isn't hosted by Mimi. But it just feels wrong. I don't think I'll go, I say, before I can stop myself. You're not going to go? Bean sounds dismayed. I'm not in a party mood. I try to sound casual. And I think I'm busy that night. So have a good time. Send everyone my love. Effie! What? I say, determinedly playing ignorant. I really think you should go. It's the last ever party at Greenoaks. We'll all be there. It's our chance to say goodbye to our house, to be a family. It's not our house anymore. I say flatly. Krista's ruined it with her tasteful paint. And we aren't a family anymore. Yes, we are, protests Bean, sounding shocked. Of course we're a family. You mustn't say that. Okay, fine, whatever. I stare morosely at the ground. Bean can say what she likes, but it's true. Our family is shattered, splintered into shards of glass, and no one will ever be able to put us back together. When did you last talk to Dad? Can't remember, I lie. He's busy, I'm busy. But you have spoken to him properly. Bean sounds anxious. You have patched things up since... Since the night I yelled at Krista and stormed out of the house, is what she means. Only she's too tactful to say so. Of course, I lie again, because I'm not having Bean get all stressed about me and Dad. 
Well, I can't get through to him, she says. Krista always answers. Huh. I put as little interest into my voice as possible, because the only way for me to cope with the whole dad situation is not to engage with it. Especially with Bean, who has a way of stirring up my heart just when I thought I'd calmed it. Effie, come to the party. Bean tries again in a cajoling voice. Don't think about Krista. Think about us. My sister is so reasonable. She sees other people's points of view. She says things like, on the other hand, and you do have a valid argument, and I hear where you're coming from. I should try to be reasonable like her, I think, in a gust of self-reproach. Or at least, I should try to sound reasonable. I close my eyes, take a deep breath, and say, I hear where you're coming from, Bean. You do have a valid argument. I'll think about it. Good, Bean sounds relieved, because otherwise Greenoaks will be gone forever. It'll be too late. Greenoaks will be gone forever. Okay, I can't deal with that thought right now. I need to finish this phone call. Bean, I have to go, I say, because I'm working in my very important job as a temporary waitress. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for that fabulous extract, Sophie. We can't wait to hear some more about this new novel after this short break. We hope you're enjoying My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers. With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, 1 to 10 for women and 6 to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation, where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August 2022, My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote Weekly 1, that's W-E-E-K-L-Y 1, as in the number 1, when you order. So whether you're tucked up at home, out for a walk, heading into the office, or dressing up for a special occasion, find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk. That's p-a-v-e-r-s.co.uk. Now, let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode. Chapter 2, Quiz the Author. This is the chapter where you get to quiz your favourite author. And don't forget, you can send in your questions for future guests. Leave a voicemail on 01382 575 486 or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk or just send an email to that address with your question. Follow us on social media to find out who our next guests are 
or head over to our website, www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts. On our bookshelf with its beautiful bright cover is your latest novel, Sophie, The Party Crasher. An absolutely perfect book for the winter party season, the time when we get together with family and friends. And let's face it, most families have their tails, they're falling out, their grudges. The Party Crasher follows Effie's plight when she's faced with the last minute anti-invitation to the last party at her childhood family home. Sophie, welcome. And tell us a bit about The Party Crasher. Where did the inspiration for this book come from? Hello. Well, thank you so much for that lovely introduction to the book, um, which I hope will be a, a kind of party escape for everybody at the moment. And that's really where the inspiration came from, I think. I was in lockdown thinking, I want to write a book that kind of transports me away from this. What's the one thing we can't do at the moment? Have a party. But of course, I couldn't just tell a straightforward party. I had to make it kind of interesting and find the, the the most potential for comedy. That's what I always look for. And comedy comes out of tension. And so I decided that I, I would have a, a fly on the wall, um, a guest who is not officially at the party, but is hiding. So Effie, as we have heard, has received an anti-invitation to the party. And she is so upset and affronted that she decides to boycott it altogether. But then she remembers her Russian dolls, which are in the house. This house is about to be sold. And if she doesn't go and get them, she's worried she'll lose them forever. So she hatches this ridiculous mission, which is that she won't attend the party. She will just creep in, dressed all in black. She will grab her dolls and then she will exit. And it should take 10 minutes and nobody will know that she was there. And of course, everything goes wrong. From the moment that she can't get into the house, then she runs into her ex-boyfriend. She gets stuck in various different hiding places while this party is going on. And she starts overhearing her family talking about themselves and about her. And somehow she can't tear herself away. So all the way through the book, you're thinking, is she going to be caught? Is she going to leave? What's going to happen? And she learns a lot about her family. And I think they learn quite a lot about her. I absolutely found that I was reading The Party Crasher and just laughing out loud because some of the imagery that you conjured up in this, you know, your voice is just one of those voices that you could just read a, a sentence of one of your books and know that it's written by you. I think where she's hiding under the table and she's grabbing at the desserts or <laughs> where, you know, her dad's new girlfriend suddenly disposed of her Spanx underwear in the blue vase. I mean, it's just so funny. <laughs> oh, you've made my day actually. Actually, thank you. I mean, I, I have to say, I do like to just really milk every situation for the maximum comedy. So I just sort of, I was really had a ball playing with the idea of this girl and finding herself in just one awkward situation after another and kind of stuck under tables and behind sofas and peeping through trap doors. And it, it felt like one of those sort of farcical plays where people keep popping up here and there and everywhere. It was such fun to write. Where do you get those ideas from? Are they from like everyday observations or, you know, how do you build on these this, this comedy that we see in your books? Do you know what I really... Um, I really think about the comedy because um, I want to sort of always take it like maybe one beat beyond what's reasonable. 
<laughs> I like to just take it to the max. And sometimes I think, am I being too extreme? But I feel that like if it's grounded enough, I mean, as you heard in the reading, there's a lot of pain and genuine family turmoil and tension going on in this book. And so almost the, the, the more painful a situation is, the more you need the release of tension. And I just love physical comedy, ridiculous, absurd. I mean, a lot of it comes out of people, their vanity. I mean, you know, there's there's a, as you say, a running gag with Spanx, you know. I mean, which of us, Spanx, I think, are just an inherently funny concept. You know, here we are, we kind of drag them onto our bodies and hope that we're sort of transformed. Um, and then, you know, through it goes to having to rip them off because they're too painful. And so I just sort of think, well, how can I feed that in and not make it meaningless, but make it come out of a kind of grounded emotion so that we really enjoy it and we're rooting for the character. It's not just somebody falling over. It's somebody that we love falling over in an absurd way. And I think that's that's what I aim for. Definitely. That really comes across. And talking about that underlying sort of sense of sentiment that also comes through your books, in The Party Crusher, it focuses around leaving the childhood home, that sense of nostalgia, if you like, about leaving Green Oaks. Um, the sisters talk of it, only a tree house, when they're saying bye to the, the gardens and the tree house there, it's only a house. I know I am one of those people who drive past my grand and granddad's house just to, I don't know why, but just to conjure up those emotions, those happy or sad emotions. How important do you think it was to you, you know, in The Party Crusher, to bring up this idea of this house, this place, and even with the Russian dolls, the symbolism of an object holding all of those memories. Oh, it's it's absolutely key. And I completely agree. And of course, you know, both sisters, I think, are in complete denial at the beginning of the book. They're sort of trying to just look forward and maybe airbrush some painful memories. And Effie is certainly in a very strange place. And she sort of pretends to the outside world, oh, it's only a house. It's everything to her. I mean, that's actually the issue. She loves every brick, every tile. Um, and she really needs to kind of process the fact that it's going. And I think it is a big deal. We invest so much into that childhood sense of being nurtured and um, a sort of a unique time in our lives. And again, with the Russian dolls, it it's not something that can be replaced by something new. You need the original um, to just conjure up that exact feeling of security. And so it really is a, a book about having to process that and, and go on. And not to say that it can't happen, but also to say that you shouldn't just rush through it. And one of her wise friends says to her, do not rush through this moment. Take your time and understand and you know, don't be hard on yourself. Of course, you're going to find it difficult. And I think that, that you know, there's this kind of relentless drive to be positive and, you know, look forward and move on. And that's good. But you can also just take stock and think, yes, this is difficult. This is hard. This is a loss. And I think that's what the whole family has to kind of get to, to that point in the book and just sit with it and not, not, not be critical of themselves because they're finding it hard. I think also what you do with that is not just with family. You show in this book that family doesn't have to be blood relations and you sprinkle in your usual amount of romance that we always love from your books. How important is it to show these different relationships and how they interlink to that person and how they can support that person during tough times, if you like? Well, you know, I wrote this book at a time that is has been tough for all of us. And I think family did become very important. But as you say, family is just, you know, your special people around you and um 
Effie's strongest attachment almost is to her stepmother. So that's not a blood relation, but it's her carer and um, a sort of pillar of her emotional life who has sort of disappeared. And, you know, friends equally, the romance, all of these are kind of emotional props and stays um, that I think, you know, at the moment we've all relied on, we've we've reached out to family, we've reached out to our loved ones, we've kind of got through, I think, the last difficult time by reaching out in all kinds of ways. And so I think that was definitely kind of informed the book. Um, and, it, you, you know, I hope kind of gives people a, a template of how to deal with difficult situations and come through. And I think that comes across in your setting, you know, just looking at the front cover, it's this party, it almost looks like New Year, you know, with these fireworks, I love that sort of element that, you know, we haven't had, like you said earlier, we haven't had these lockdown, through lockdown, we haven't had these parties, have we? So it's that concept of setting it around a party um, and, you know, being able to talk about parties almost again after lockdown. How important was it for you to be able to write? And was it quite nice to be able to have this place where you could talk about parties when actually we've not been having them? Do you know, it was a complete escape. It was my little escape hatch into, um, it almost felt like fantasy fiction. Like, you know, I'm going to write about this fantastical other world in which people are allowed to have parties and no one's wearing a mask. And look, they're hugging each other. Wow. Um, it was like I could dip into this other universe every day. And um, I just kind of clung on to the belief that this would come back into our lives. We would have it one day. And meanwhile, I could I could write about it in a sort of spirit of hope. And I think, you know, all writers, when the pandemic hit, we kind of thought, well, you know, what do I do? Do I write about the pandemic? Do I? And I sort of went the other way. I was like, no, I just don't want to go there. I'm going to write about a different world. And so I, I must admit, it cheered me up. Um, in those days. And I hope that even though, you know, we may not have got back to the full party season, this is like a taster of, you know, the life that we're going to have again. Oh my, you know, you got a dessert trolley in there. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I've forgotten about those. We used to have those at Beatty's in Wolverhampton, you know, dessert trolley coming through. What would you like? And I thought that was amazing. Do you think you'll have a party this year with a dessert trolley? Absolutely. I am going to just make like every single dessert I can think of and load them up onto a trolley. Now, whether there will be anyone hiding under a table watching me, I couldn't say. But um, for me, that just went back to kind of, you know, a fantasy land. Dessert trolleys are just almost a sort of comforting reminder of a previous era. Um, so I just, to be honest with this book, I just had fun. I'm, I was just like, well, what would I like in a party? I'm going to put that in. It was like kind of curating my own party and putting it in the book. You've got a quote in The Party Crasher where you say, you can take a guy to a coffee shop, but you can't make him bear his soul. I wanted to know how much fun it was to take this kind of proverb, if you like, and recreate it. Um, is there a quote or a one-liner that you live by as well? Well, I do love playing around with words and proverbs. Um, so that was that was a great fun line to write. And I suppose if I had to look at a proverb that I would change to reflect, maybe not so much me, but the stories I write, it would it'd be instead of a stitch in time saves nine, it would be a confession in time saves your whole life from unraveling into disaster. So um, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> I think we should all live by that. I think I will. <laughs> 
I wanted to ask you about how your writing has developed over the years. So actually 20 years ago, when I was fresh out of uni, I was working for New Woman Online and I actually interviewed you. Um, I think it was via phone, I think, on the telephone about Shopaholic. It was your first Shopaholic book that came out, which is just so bizarre. I was chatting to my mum about it. and was like, oh my gosh, it's like come full circle. So I want to know how has your writing changed from your early days? Because in this book you're writing as a sort of 20 year old something really as Effie um and and how you are able to fit into that character when you're writing that is such a good question and actually a good friend of mine asked me that the other day and she said how do you do it you know I couldn't possibly go back to that time it's really weird and the only theory I've developed is that when I was in the workplace I was very much the junior and I was a financial journalist, which, you know, worked its way into the Shopaholic books. But I left that workplace um, when I was 25. And I think I've been frozen in time in my head since then as a 25-year-old in the corner at that level. I never progressed up the ranks. I was never the boss. I never managed anybody. And so when I write these books about 20-something protagonists, I have this like kind of time travel. I kind of go back to that time. And I'm I'm just sort of, I remember it like it was yesterday and I still actually feel like that person. So it doesn't feel any different for me. And I guess all I've got now is just a, a sort of added life experience, which I can bring to it and bring to the other characters and hopefully have slightly more wisdom than I did back then, although I wouldn't really count on that. Um, and I suppose I can sort of empathize now with all the generations. But honestly, I do still slightly feel like the junior in the corner um, when I write them. So that's that's what I just channel that. I honestly don't know how you can feel like that with such a success and so many, you know, you you write in so many different um, different age groups, you know, Mummy Fairy and Me and then Young Adults and then all your adult books as well. So you should feel confident you've done well. So <laughs> oh, you're so nice. <laughs> now we're going to go to some readers' questions. First of all, Sophie, we've got a question from Margaret who's actually phoned her question through. Hi, Sophie. My name is Margaret. I'm phoning from the southwest of Scotland. Can you tell me what your favourite author was when you were a child? I feel like I want to reply to Margaret. Hi, Margaret. <laughs> I feel like we're now in a conversation. So I wish you were right here. But thank you so much for asking. Um, it's really hard to pin down one favourite childhood author. Um, I mean, I read a lot of Enid Blyton. I read a lot of Roald Dahl. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a book that gripped me. E. Nesbitt as well, who wrote Five Children in It and The Treasure Seekers. I just found her so funny. Um, so, But to be honest, I just read everything. I was such a bookworm. So now we're going to go to another question that's been sent in from Francesca. Sophie, you've written so many captivating stories. I must admit, I identified with Shopaholic far too much. What would you say your favourite book is and why? Thank you and keep writing. Oh, Francesca, thank you so much. Um, I'm very flattered by that and I'm very glad that you identify with what I do, <laughs> kindred spirit. Um, I mean, there are so many books I wish I'd written. Um, I'm, I'll plump right now for Emma by Jane Austen um, because I think she pulls off the flawed heroine so perfectly um, that's what I love to do, write 
characters who are not perfect. They have their foibles and they go wrong, but you love them anyway. And Emma goes so wrong, but we're rooting for her. And I think there's just such a skill in that. So I'll, I'll go with that. Brilliant. Thank you. And we've had some questions emailed in as well, Sophie. So Rebecca Roberts has sent two. Um, first of all, she said, do you read your book reviews? How do you deal with the good and the bad ones? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I do read book reviews. I think, you know, you have to know whether your books are hitting a chord or not. Um, so, and I'm very interested in people's reactions because otherwise I'm just doing this in a vacuum or in a bubble and I and I don't really know what is touching people or what doesn't work. What I don't do is sort of type my name into Google and obsessively try and find every single mention that that I possibly can online, which I think is a rabbit hole that would be quite tempting to go down. And, you know, the trouble is, if you look hard enough, you're going to find somebody saying something, you know, really quite mean or upsetting, which is not going to help you write your next book. So, I mean, I start off with my valued editors and team around me for their opinion. And then I read reviews and I, I do respect all my reviews. But what I don't do is just go out searching. Um, I And I tell you what, meeting readers and hearing from them in the flesh what they really loved or didn't work is amazing. It's amazing. It's a conversation that I can just love having at events and even just one-to-one, -one, somebody comes to have a book signed and they say, oh, I love this bit. I would never have known that otherwise. And that's what I've really missed in the pandemic, actually, is not so much reviews from official sources, but readers just saying, oh, that bit was funny. And I think, oh, good. I would never have known that. I'm so thrilled. That That's, for me, the review that counts the most. Excellent. And one final question from Rebecca. She says, in your new book, Party Crasher, what was the hardest scene to write? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I don't say hardest because I love doing it, but I would say one of the most challenging scenes was this big set piece in the middle of the book where the character Effie is hiding under a console table and she's watching her whole family have this quite grand dinner party and some of them know she's there, but some of them don't and all these secrets are coming out and it's it's quite a kind of meticulously planned scene um, and it took me a while to kind of absolutely crack it. But I really wanted to kind of go big with this. I wanted it to be a great big scene with lots of stuff going on and choreography and a dessert trolley and, and everything. So I almost felt like a kind of director in a movie, just making it all happen. And, and I, I loved writing it. Thanks so much, Sophie, for those fantastic answers and listeners for your brilliant questions. Remember, if you've got an all-important question to ask your favourite author, then check out the My Weekly website to find out which big authors are coming up on the podcast www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts and of course send those questions to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk after all this author insight you're sure to be itching to get a copy of the party crasher don't forget you can swipe down to the episode notes to buy your copy chapter three book post here we are in our final chapter with author Sophie Kinsella. After rifling through our stacks, the book that has made it through the My Weekly Magical Bookshop letterbox this week is Would I Lie to You? by Alia Ali Afsal. As always, we promise not to reveal any spoilers, but just enough to entice you to read. The blurb says he's lost his job. She secretly spent the family savings. 
Can she put it all back before time runs out? What would you do if you had your dream life and you were about to lose it? Sophie, what an amazing book to pick. It really made me think of a darker sort of shopaholic, if you like, with the financial questions in it. Can you tell me why you picked this book for Book Post this week? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, I just think it's the most brilliant premise. It's absolutely gripping. Um, You know, the sort of just the ticking clock of the plight that the heroine finds herself in, which is that her husband's lost her job. They have this so-called emergency fund and she's spent it all. And when you hear that, you think, oh, well, for goodness sake, you know, why did you spend the emergency fund? And why didn't you just tell him everything straight away? But the skill in the story is that we root for this heroine. We can understand. So she's living in this world, which I know, having also lived in that area of London, where she's trying to keep up with the yummy mummies, with the kind of culture around the school gate. She's trying to do the best for her children. She's doing, making kind of mistakes, but for the best possible reasons or out of insecurity and has felt that she needs to kind of live up to a level of lifestyle, which really is 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 beyond her and she's doing kind of for the wrong reasons but you understand every single time she goes wrong and this this book has an amazing tension to it which i really admire um there's a ticking clock there's will she be discovered can she put this situation right and she tries this she tries that without giving away spoilers she's a dynamic heroine she doesn't just sit around and feel sorry for herself she's like how could i put back this money and solve the problem. But of course, she is thwarted at every turn. And I think there's a kind of darkness to this novel. There's a a kind of real um, exploration of pressures and mental health and anxiety and, uh, you know, the racism that the heroine faces. And it's just a deep, book, but with a very catchy premise. And I think that's a real achievement. I absolutely agree. I mean, when I was reading it, I felt like you're really rooting for her. But I had this feeling in the bottom of my tummy, like, you know, an emotional reaction, if you like, because I just thought, oh, gosh, she's getting herself into more trouble, more strife. And everything that she did, it kind of unraveled even more. Had If she had talked to her husband, then maybe it would have been different. She did try. Do you think, as your experience as an ex-financial journalist before you became an author, do you think money is a taboo? Because I know you've brought it into the Shopaholic series, but it's not something we talk about, is it, particularly with women? Oh, absolutely. And I think there's also a sort of an... uh, um a feature of kind of control, you know, in in these sort of slightly one-sided relationships where one person is earning and the other isn't, there might be a sort of sense of guilt over spending. And I think in this novel, there's a sort of background that her parents fought over money. And she found that so upsetting that in instead of confront it, she rather would squirrel it away. And I think everybody's guilty of this, that, that the first thing they don't mention is quite tiny. Um, you know, you just don't mention one purchase or you scroll away one receipt or you dip into the fund once. And then, of course, that's the thin end of the wedge and it escalates. So it's not as if she set out completely to deceive her husband. It's that she just finds herself edging slowly into this mess. And then, of course, at the point at which she should be coming clean, he's under tremendous stress. I mean, the book begins with him losing his job. And this is a, you know, a sort of seismic blow for them. So you can see how if she had perhaps told him a month previously, they might have had a calm conversation. But in the height of 
drama happening to your family, sometimes the instinct is just to kind of say even less and try and fix it silently on your own. I think it's exactly that. And drama is the word for this book. There was one part, and I'm not going to spoil, do any spoilers here, but there was one part towards the end where I actually felt like shouting out, no, because I just hoped that what I didn't want to happen wasn't going to happen. And it was, I was so immersed in it um, with that drama. And I think what's interesting is Tom and Fazia are from different cultural and racial backgrounds and they've had different childhood experiences, like you were saying about her parents. But there's this, highlighted spotlight if you like on the racial semantics of everything the undercurrent of the racism where um she sort of says in her own words that her initial classification was always brown muslim and of pakistani origin and i think it's really highlighted in this book that just the smallest of words or the way words are used causes that racism. How did you find that in the book? I found it so skillfully done that these issues were all put across in a way that that was sort of painful um, that you could obviously not relate to, but you could empathise with. Um, and it was sort of put seamlessly into a scene so that the scene had started off being about one thing and then you sort of felt the shock or the disappointment at people's behaviours and their language and their attitudes um, because because you're rooting with, for this heroine and, you know, you're with her, you're inside her mind, so you're almost experiencing these dreadful moments along with her. And I think that it's a very well-observed novel Um it, it portrays this world with sort of pinpoint accuracy down to every sort of detail, every little kind of consumer um, point. I mean, it, they, it starts where she's at, a, I think, at a Botox party. You know, this is the sort of life that she's she's leading. and But she has all these, as you say, extra sort of cultural issues going on. Um, and But this is all set alongside this kind of pulsating story of, of ratcheting up the tension with every chapter. Um, so what I love is that all the messages and there's sort of mental health in there and there's, you know, a lot of clever sort of insightful stuff about marriage, but it goes alongside the story, which I think is the greatest way that a story can tell a, can get across their messages is just to do it seamlessly through the storytelling. It definitely it's the way those lies unravel, you know, as we're going through. The lies are unraveling. She's on the periphery with these botoxed yummy mummies, if you like, and not feeling like she's accepted there. And then she can't talk to her husband and even her closest friends, you know, we look at sort of women and and having this really small tribe around them, even she can't go to them. Do you find that you could relate to this? You know, she was going through so much that I think people experience maybe marriage problems or mental health at various points in their life, but she was experiencing everything at once. So did that make the character sort of relatable for oh, you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was just sort of, I remember once hearing somebody describe, you know, a great story as you put your character in a tree and then start throwing things at them. And she has everything thrown at her. And what's really interesting is how she explores the way that even with our closest friends, we we say we're confiding in with them and we say that we're so close and we say that there are no secrets, but there are secrets. And that people have a sort of pride, even with the people closest to them, even with their own family, her parents. I mean, you know, there are moments where she's at a sort of family get together and 
it's all, I mean, you know, I really relate to this. I, I often write this kind of scene myself where the conversation is doing one thing, but the reality underneath is quite another. And I think that everybody experiences this, but I think in the society that she's describing where so much is sort of assessed on exterior sort of materialistic values, there's even more of a sense of appearance is one thing, reality is another who can you trust also? I think there's a real sense of not quite knowing who you can trust. You know, who does she want to tell that her husband's lost the job? At, at, at the beginning of the book, this is quite an issue. Who are we going to tell? It's not as if they are in such a safe space that they can instantly phone up all their friends and loved ones and say, oh no, you know, guess what? This has happened. Their instinct is we can't tell anybody. So that sort of tells you something about the life you're leading if your instinct is we have to keep it secret because either we'll upset people or we will be looked down on or some other consequence but not we live in a lovely lovely network that will immediately reach out to support and help us it's not that and so of course she feels on her own I, I think it's exactly that it's that thing is you ask somebody are you okay but then you ask are you really okay and actually she can't answer that and is anybody asking her that in the first place you know in her circle because she's kept everything away from people hasn't she but you know what a thought-provoking book thanks for choosing it Sophie and if you listeners want to grab a copy then don't forget to swipe down to episode notes thanks so much Sophie for coming on the my weekly magical flying bookshop podcast do drop by again soon thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute joy that's brilliant thank you so much Sophie that was good fun thank you time at my weekly's magical flying bookshop has come to an end for this episode join us next time for more big name authors stories and extracts read just for you and our favorite book recommendations landing wherever you are whether you're out with the dogs in a pair of sturdy walking shoes heading into work or cozied up at home in your comfiest slippers if you love fiction cooking and interviews with your favorite celebrities then you'll love my weekly and as a listener to the magical flying bookshop you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just six pounds head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code mwpod that's mwpod to save more than 60 percent on the cover price check the episode notes for details and terms that's all for now pick up your copy of my weekly and escape with our fiction stories and until you pop into the bookshop again have a wonderful booktastic week i'm claire gill and this was my weekly's magical flying bookshop sponsored by pavers your perfect style